millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, September 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the citywide boil water notice in Jackson may be over, but some parents say the system's water has been dangerous for years. Then a Mississippi-based credit union gets a federal infusion to help bridge wealth gaps. Plus, talking to a NASA engineer, we are on the eve of National HBCU Week and Conference. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Department of Health issued a boil water notice for the city of Jackson, and that has been lifted. Governor Tate Reeves announced last week that after extensive work at the OB Curtis water treatment plant, the system cleared tests required to end the advisory. But the nearly two-month-long period of undrinkable tap water is a symptom of a system that is aging, antiquated, and undersourced. That's the argument of Corey Stern, an attorney representing hundreds of Jackson families in lawsuits over the water system. The night before the boil water notice was lifted, Stern, his clients, and other prospective clients gathered at the Mississippi Children's Museum. It was a notice that more needs to be done, including accountability. It's an opportunity for us to spend time with our clients. Uh, what's happened in Jackson has made national news, but we've been here since October of last year, and we've been researching and studying the problems in Jackson for the last five years. And it takes time to develop a case, a story, but now the story's telling itself. And the same things that caused the water treatment plant to shut down, to be unable to operate, for the pressure to get terrible is the same things that led to kids being lead poisoned for the last five, six, seven, ten years, decades possibly. And what that is is just complete mismanagement of the water utility. What that means is just complete mismanagement of the water treatment plant. And it's not that the lead caused the problems over the last two weeks, three weeks. What happened is the entire utility has been managed by people who aren't properly trained, a place that's not properly staffed, a place that's not properly funded. and. If we didn't come now to talk to them about the cases that we filed for them a year ago, then I have no idea what we're doing. I have no idea what our purpose is. We would be frauds. So we're here because these are our people. We filed cases for them a year ago. We didn't come here when the plant shut down. We came here in the middle of the night like ninjas, realizing what happened when it happened. And now what, what's happening to the city is finally showing itself to the world. But we saw it a year ago. We saw it a year and a half ago. And we wanted to let them know that we're still here. 
Carolyn Brown, a widow with three children, first applied for legal assistance last year. She spoke with our Kobe Vance at the event, sharing how this latest episode affected her family. It's taking a toll on me mentally. You know, it's like my face has started breaking out. My daughter, she suffers from eczema. You know, her skin and stuff done broke out on her legs and stuff. And it's like, I'm like... I'm thinking it's coming from taking a shower. You know how you take baths using that water because she wasn't, you know, broken all out like that before then. So, yeah, it really is. Can you tell me a little bit why you decided to come out here tonight to discuss these lawsuits? Well, I decided to come out because I applied two years ago um, for help with this law firm. And um, for my youngest child, and they sent me an email and was telling me I need to come in today to um, go over further details with the litigation part. So I came in to find out, get receive more information, and to know when is the next, what is the next step? Like, what is the next step? When is this going to be resolved? When are we going to be confiscated for the things that we have having to deal with? I mean, like. It's unsanitary because our water was off. So it's like you can't even flush your toilet, you know, because the water was off for days and days and days. So you had to, like, you couldn't, like, even take a bath like you wanted to. You know, you had to, like, use bottled water and pour it in a bowl and try to take, like, wash-ups and stuff because we had no water running. So you had to use water to pour in the toilet to be able to flush the toilet. So it was, it, it was gross. And we went through the same thing last year when we had a problem with the water. And our water was off over a month and a half. And we had to do the same thing then. So just imagine. What has it been like as a resident of Jackson to see this, you know, conversation escalating over the past couple weeks? It's been a living hell. It's been a living hell. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's been a living hell. And I feel like since Jackson is... A lot of people in Jackson are poverty, so I feel like a lot of people in Jackson are low class, and, and so I feel like they don't they treat them accordingly, you know. But it's people in Jackson who aren't low class who actually go to work, you know, every day, who actually went to school, who actually graduated, who actually got education and great job, you know. But we have to deal with this, you know. We pay taxes, you know, and all this, but we have to suffer. We're suffering. It's like it's not fair. It's not right. We're suffering. We're suffering. No one is doing anything about it. Now they're bringing water, but they haven't fixed the water system. So the water is still not good. It's been going on forever. So, like, I'm just, I'm I'm tired. I'm I'm tired. Takorshe Bates was also there. The seven-week boil water notice was enough for her to seek out information to join lawsuits about poor water quality. We need to step up as a community and try to, um, Get this, get it, get something done about the water problem. As a mother, what's it like to try to, you know, provide for your child whenever you can't even get water from the tap? Uh, it's very difficult. It's and then they're small, so they don't understand really what's going on. They're not knowing, oh mom, why we can't drink the water or why we can't, you know, use the water out of the sink. Like, baby, no, it's not good water. So you're gonna have to use, you know, the bottle. It's kind of, it's difficult. It's hard to try to. Maneuver your lifestyle, or, or you know, the normal things people do that have good running water do, it's, it's difficult when you have kids that don't understand. If you could have a chance to talk with, you know, leaders, whether it be the city or state, what would you like to tell them? 
uh, that they need to really take this more seriously. I understand, like, you know, they have a lot on their plate, and it's a lot of things that they have to do, other things that they have to worry about, but water is essential. We need it, and there's nothing to just, um, you know, smooth over. So, yeah, just work harder on getting the problem fixed instead of just patching it up. How many kids do you have again? I just have one son, but I am a teacher, so I have lots of babies. Gotcha. So, and yeah. some of my babies do go to Jackson Public School, so and, and it's very difficult to hear their families go through things, especially with other families that have more kids than me. It's difficult to hear that, so yeah. Nearly 2,000 children in Jackson are represented in the cases alleging dangerous water conditions such as lead. Last week, the citywide boil water notice for Jackson was lifted by the Department of Health, as we mentioned, and officials say it is safe to drink the water, although some localized boil water notices have gone into effect again. Coming up, a Mississippi-based credit union gets a federal infusion of millions in a grant to help underserved communities. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A black-owned credit union says nearly $93 million in federal funding will provide capital for a $1 billion program to help close racial and gender gaps in five southern states over the next decade. The Mississippi-based Hope Credit Union says a $92.6 million capital infusion from a Treasury Department pandemic relief program will do this. The funds will allow them to provide financing for businesses and affordable housing. Ed Sivak is chief policy officer at Hope. He says this program will help continue the organization's mission of promoting wealth equity. The banking industry has a racial equity problem, and, and it's structural. If you look at the racial wealth gap in America, it's about 10 to 1. Um, you know, white families hold $171,000 in net worth in contrast to roughly only 17000 for black families. And, you know, many of the, the ways that people build wealth is, is baked into um, flaws in the banking system. If you look at banking access in Mississippi, you know, roughly half of black households are unbanked or underbanked compared to only a quarter of white households. Um, if you look at uh, the mortgage industry, you know, we've seen that black borrowers earning over $150,000 experience mortgage denial rates at rates that are higher than, than white borrowers earning between thirty dollars and $50,000. And so, you know, as we look at this opportunity, again, it's important to ground it in, in the challenges that it was designed to overcome. And in talking about overcoming this, you are pledging $1 billion. How are you able to do that? 
Um, well, the um, the billion dollar commitment was really seeded uh, from an investment through the Emergency Capital Investment Program. This was a program that's administered by the U.S. Treasury uh, that was um, funded by Congress uh, in response to the pandemic. And so we are going to use that investment to close racial and gender opportunity gaps throughout our footprint, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, in Tennessee, and we project that the investment will benefit more than 150,000 people over the, the next 10 years. We plan to um, use this initial investment. Uh, it's a roughly $92, $93 million investment from Treasury. It's a long-term loan that will go out and raise low-cost deposits um, from that and then deploy it through what HOPE does every day, through markedly increasing our, our mortgage lending to first-time home buyers, to small business borrowers, uh, to people who, who need basic financial services, whether it's a car to get to work or whether it's um, other types of um, financial services, again, that people need to get up the economic ladder. And we anticipate that we'll raise between, you know, $700, $800 million in deposits um, um, that will in turn use that will in turn be used as loan capital to support the types of activities that I described earlier. You know, getting people into homes, uh, supporting entrepreneurs uh, with um, starting businesses, uh, getting ba- people's basic financial service needs met. So, does so that we'll, mean that you take deposits and you are able to use those money to fund projects? That's exactly what it means. That's how hope works. You know, we go out. And we raise regulatory capital, and then we raise deposits, low-cost deposits, from corporations, mission-aligned individuals, and that serves as the capital that we use to fund our mortgages, to fund our small business loans, to fund our consumer loans. Can you give us an idea of what you've been able to do in Mississippi in terms of helping home buyers and helping folks start businesses and any other projects that they came to you for money? Oh, absolutely. You know, Hope has a long track record of of investing in people and places throughout Mississippi, particularly some of the most economically distressed places in the state. Uh, If you look at our track record over the last 28 years, you know, 87% of Hope's members, 36,000 members are people of color, uh, roughly 60% are women. Uh, we're the largest black and women-owned financial institution in the country. Um, nearly half of our members were unbanked or underbanked prior to joining uh, the credit union, and three out of four um, earn less than $50,000 a year. Uh, Desiree, on any given day, uh, two-thirds of HOPE members have less than $1,000 in the bank. You know, if you if you look at Hope, um, you know we've designed our products and services to um, overcome uh, barriers, structural barriers like the racial wealth gap. So, for example, you know our mortgage uh, program does not require a down payment. Uh, we don't require uh, mortgage insurance. Uh, we manually underwrite every loan, which means we're going to look at each individual's uh, situation and figure out if there's a way to get them into a home. Uh, We don't just put their information into a computer program and wait for an algorithm to arrive at a decision. Again, we meet people where they are. And and 
the proof of uh, the effectiveness of this approach is, is found in our results. You know, 87% of our mortgages are to first-time home buyers. 90% are to people of color. 64% are to women. And, and, and these loans pay, too. You know, our mortgage charge-off rate last year was less than uh, 0.1%. Um, if you look at our consumer lending, um, you know, the average credit score of our borrowers is around 640 uh, compared to a credit score uh, nationally of over 700 points. And if you look at our small business lending, over 70% of our loans last year were to people of color. Uh, so again, it's about taking um, an approach that has worked for over 28 years where we meet people where they are. We design products and services uh, to address structural barriers. And frankly, we go to where um, our members live and, and where where the need is greatest. Uh, uh, 80% of our branches are in majority black communities, and our staff reflects the, the communities that we serve. Um, well over half of our staff are, are people of color, but well over half are women. Um, and this exists whether it's on the front line all the way up to the office of the CEO and the board of directors. Ed Sivak with Hope Credit Union. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your new endeavor. Thank you, uh, Desiree. It's great to be on the show. Coming up, talking to a NASA engineer on the eve of National HBCU Week and Conference. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Travis Martin is a NASA engineer. Within the next calendar year, his team will conduct the Astra Project, the first ever flight project controlled from the Stennis Space Station. Martin is a Georgia native and alumnus of Alabama A&M University. In recognition of HBCU Week, we talked to him about his path to NASA and the role his HBCU education made in getting him there. I remember being a young young boy, sitting Indian style in front of our first large color TV at home and watching the Challenger explode. Uh, I had the mental awareness and fortitude to know that that was something really went wrong, but there was also the other thoughts I had in my head, even that young, uh, saying, I wonder what happened. I, I want to know what really went wrong. Like, how does that work? So I was always that kind of curious kid. I was a, I used to take apart appliances in the house and put them back together just to see how they would, they work. That's my earliest moment and thought about space and, and NASA and what was going on and, and what sparked my interest. And I, I carried that interest all the way through grade school. Uh, but when I got to college, uh, there's, I realized there were very few universities that had degrees, you know, for like aerospace engineering or, you know, things of that nature. So I said, what is the closest thing that my university offered? And it was uh, computer, it was computer engineering, electrical engineering, computer science with a specialization in microelectronics. And I, I saw a direct correlation between that type of technology and advancements there and therein as they, and they were, 
correlate with what space-based operations do, space vehicles, the avionics, the computer systems. Stepping into this field, well, what, if any, reservations did you have about the diversity of the field you were entering? And have you seen a shift in the diversity uh, of this industry, of this field, over that course of time, as, as, may, as more and more emphasis has been, put in, been being put on STEM, on science, and the accessibility of, those, of that education that, and those skills um, being expanded to reach more and more communities? Yes. Within NASA, I have seen uh, orders of magnitude changes when it comes to diversity and acceptance of not just uh, race, but culture and uh, acceptance of uh, appearance, as I would definitely say in my part. Yeah, the diversity at Alabama A&M uh, opened my eyes in so many ways because I hadn't traveled you know, much at all. I was a young person. I was a young man. I spent majority of my you know, upbringing in, in Georgia. Uh, but to meet these gentlemen that not only looked like me, had already excelled in a you know, technical field and had come back to impart their knowledge you know, on a younger base so it can continue on. It was, it, you know, it was, I put the biggest smile on my face ever. Uh, it was, it was such a humbling experience. And when I, when I got the opportunity to come to work for NASA, it, it didn't even have to be told to me. I knew that would be also my mission as well to not only uh, you know, pers- you know, pursue my endeavors and, and persevere through any hardships or, or you know, quote-unquote glass ceilings or barriers in my way to keep pushing forward because it had already been done before me. They opened these doors for me. It was on myself to open those doors wider for those that come behind me. But when I first started, I definitely noticed that uh, in a conference room, of 50 individuals, uh, there were maybe uh, two minorities, including myself, which most of the time. But that that slowly changed in the first five or six years. Uh, more so, I believe, uh, it was not just the awareness that uh, the government and NASA and just you know, society had recognized that there was a need for diverse, diversification. Uh, but it also... About, the, about that time frame, uh, you know, 2009, 2010, I saw a lot of the what I like to call the second generation of NASA uh, get to retirement age. And so a lot of positions that had previously been filled for 15, 20, 25 years finally were open for new individuals to come into NASA. I saw the diversity inclusion uh, organization take charge and spearhead campaigns to actually diversify the workforce. And and it's been pretty successful from my observations, but it still has a long way to go, especially when it comes to uh, women women engineers coming into this field. Uh, This week is National Historical Black Colleges and Universities Week, a big conference the latter part of the week. Um, And so I would like to kind of close by, by asking you, uh, what your HBCU experience meant for you, and then your thoughts on the reinvestment in HBCUs and the recognition of their importance 
uh, for the communities they serve. Ah, huh. I'm trying to pull my thoughts together on that. So the the reinvestment into the HBCUs as of recent uh, are phenomenal um, and, and long overdue. Because uh, one thing that I took away from my HBCU experience is that each individual uh, campus contain libraries of of information and, and accomplishments that are not in, in typical history books. Uh, I never knew prior to getting to Alabama A&M that uh, 50 of the top 100 scientists listed in America started at, either started their own HBCUs, went to an HBCU and graduated, or came back and taught at HBCUs. Um, for me, it was, it was it felt like the right choice because going to an HBCU as well, it, you're in a smaller school, uh, smaller school equaling uh, you know, smaller classroom size, which meant a more intimate learning experience. I don't, I don't think I would be at NASA if I didn't go to Alabama A&M. Personally, I thought I think I probably would have went into, uh, you know, working for big uh, corporate America, but. At the HBCUs, in my, and especially in my experience, uh, the instructors and, and the community therein would always nurture your ambitions and your passions, not just pushing you towards seeking a position of power and money. They were always about pushing passion. If you, if you had a thought and a dream, go chase it, because that's how you create new things and new ideas. Travis Martin NASA, Center Space Center down on the Mississippi coast. Thank you for just sharing some thoughts with us uh, ahead of uh, National HBCU Week. Oh, thank you very much. This is Mississippi Edition.